Um, I feel, and, I, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to give you this note for the edit. Uh, when you say all that, you need to have something appear on the screen like spoilers ahead because you just spoiled a book that we're not reviewing. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginative space where readers and writers make meaning together. We are your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Good morning, Shannon. How are you going? I am going exceptionally well on a Sunday morning, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about Revenge by Yoko Agawa. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal book. Yeah, just that's all I can say. Go get a copy and support this amazing author. Yeah, it is an amazing book. Uh, although I suppose, you know, the first thing we should talk about, you know, I just, I'm trying to throw you a curveball here, is, uh, oh, is the title it. Revenge uh, as a translation because the uh, the actual title is uh, six words long, uh, the Japanese title. Um and revenge is not any of those words. So I'll tell you a bit more about the title soon. But uh, do you think revenge is a good title for this book? I don't think so. And my reason for that is, but now I'm really curious before I give my answer of these six words that have been somehow translated from the Japanese into revenge. Oh, and hats off to the translator. Stephen Snyder has done an amazing job on this book. But, I mean, in some stories, actually, no, I've changed my mind. Yes, I do think revenge is a good title because I was just thinking about the couple of stories and there's this undercurrent of revenge, but it's not the main theme, in my opinion, of this collection of short stories. I mean, I guess the other way of looking at it is revenge could be a sort of a malevolent karma um, because, you know, many of the characters in the book, I suppose, have indifferent outcomes, <laughs> to, say, to say the least. So uh, it is interesting. Stephen Snyder is a really good uh, translator and he works very closely with um, Yoko Agawa when he does her work. So she kind of, yeah. She's very involved in the translations. I think he, I believe Snyder also uh, translates Murakami or is one of Murakami's translators. Um, I feel like that is the case. And has Snyder translated all of Yoko Agawa's books for her? Because she's got, she's written 20 books in the Japanese, but I'm not quite sure how many have been translated to English. All the ones that have been translated to English, he has translated. So that's uh, what have we got? We've got The Diving Pool, three novellas. We have Revenge, which we're talking about today. Um, Hotel we've Iris. We've got The Housekeeper and the Professor, Hotel Iris, The Memory Police. I think that's the lot. So five. Yeah. So a quarter of her uh, current output, although. Uh, has she gone beyond 20 books? Our information could be out of date. She is prolific. So there could be 21 or 22 by now. Uh, obviously, if you're listening to this and you know the answer, uh, comment and, uh, and like and subscribe and hit the bell and, uh, and also throw money at our sponsors if we ever get any. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that all needed to be said, I think. I would love to put the hat in the ring for some coffee sponsors because, um, you know, we are always drinking coffee while we're we doing our podcast. Coffee. So coffee, clandestino, I love them, down in Noosa, Australia. Please send coffee our way. I don't think I have a favourite mm, coffee, but I could be This blend bored. is amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> this blend has dark revenge elements, very similar to Yoko Agawa. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that does sound exciting. All right. Let me tell you then. Uh, <laughs> the the title of the book, and you'll excuse my pronunciation, uh, is Komoku Nashigai Madara Na Tomoru. Uh, sorry, Tomurai. Uh, uh, one more time for the Gareths. Uh, Komoku Nashigai Madara Na 
Tamurai. Um, and the translation that you can get from this maybe is something along the lines of reticent corpse, dirty mourning, as in mourning with a U in the funereal sense. Okay. Reticent, reticent corpse, corpse, dirty mourning. Okay. I think Revenge is a great title. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you know, these things don't translate culturally quite so well. Now I got that, um, I got that translation, uh, via a really, really good review of this book, um, by James Rickman. Uh, and if uh, people want to have a, a read of that, that's in airshipdaily.com, Airship Daily. Really good review. And uh, Mr. Rickman uh, actually produced a chart where he, because the stories have intertextual connections, he decided to chart those connections uh, and put together a chart. And so when you go to his review, you can click on the chart if you wish and see those connections graphically displayed. But as he says, click on it or don't. And we'll also put that display up now. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's handwritten. Uh, It's a a fantastic effort. I think, uh, now what does he say about this? Let me have a look. And while Gareth is going through his notes, I just want to say that there's going to be spoilers, obviously. (laughs) There are going to be spoilers, yes. Um, yeah, so so he says, you think about trans... So this is, this is his own internal process. Um, you decide to reread the book at your desk in one sitting. This time, you pencil out a grid with a column for each of the 11 stories, and you start keeping track of the recurring characters, settings, and motifs. You also create a row labeled fruit question mark because there's a warehouse full of kiwis in the second story and a garden full of hand-shaped carrots among other less palatable things in the third. Two hours later, you're blinking down at the grid that we've, we've got up. Uh, under that, he says, click to enlarge or don't. And he says, you think about transferring it to a Google spreadsheet and offering it to anyone interested in the book, but you sense that you're starting to miss the point. Sure, it was fun realizing that the young girl in fruit juice is also the slightly older baker in afternoon at the bakery, but the pleasure lies in discovering those connections yourself, a sort of cascading deja vu that grows stronger as the book progresses and characters start to split and blend. Trying to iron it all out would be about as satisfying as Googling Mulholland Drive meaning. And I would agree with that. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, it is Hands one up of those to anyone things. who's watched Mulholland Drive and Googled what the hell did I just watch afterwards? Give me the meaning because it was a big hogpodgle mess of I don't know, but it was fascinating and amazing to watch. And it's one of those movies that you continue to watch over and over again. Yeah, you gotta love David Lynch or not, but I do. Uh, now, David Lynch is someone that Agawa is often compared to. Uh, and, and, and indeed, uh, you know, the game of comparing artists to other artists is, is very much a thing when it, uh, relates to her work. You, you noted some comparisons, I believe, um, pre podcast that you were aware of comparisons that have been made. Uh, yes. Thanks for putting the spotlight on me for this one and apologies to all Murakami fans, but, um, I read a couple of reviews and they mentioned that Yogo Gawa lives in the shadow of Murakami and his work. Now, I've read seven Murakami books because I've been told what an amazing author he is. And indeed, he can write. He is prolific. Um, But he can't even put a candlelight or a torchlight to Yogo Gawa, in my opinion. She is far more phenomenal and maybe in terms of living in the shadow because everyone knows of Murakami, but in terms of the work and the enjoyment level that you get, uh, Agawa's right on the money. She is phenomenal. So put that Murakami book down and just pick this book up and you'll see what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I, oh, I'm going to get so much hate mail for that. Well, I'm a big Murakami <laughs> fan, uh, very much so. I mean... Well, can you tell us why? Oh, if you were to go into a bookstore, Gareth, and there's a pile of Murakami books and there's a pile of Yoko Ogawa books, which pile are you buying? Well, no. I mean, okay, so I think I've said this before, but Ogawa <laughs> is my favourite writer. She's the writer that I, I most uh, want to write like. And when when I fall into writer's block, as, as does happen, my go-to reading experience is The Diving Pool, the, the three novellas. It seems to inspire me out of my funk. Um, so, no. I, I mean, yes. Yes, no. Yoko Ragara is number one to me, but I, but then I like she is number one to me. I, I think she's she's easily my favorite writer. So everyone else is is falling into second place. Uh, but Murakami has uh, incredible charms. Uh, that he he is, I think, a genuinely eccentric person, and his sort of uh, sense of things, his the aesthetics he applies to things, I find endlessly charming. Um, both Agawa and Murakami are inspired by uh, Kobo Abe. I think that's a really easy thing to see, but they're inspired in different ways. Um, in actual fact, uh, because the, the other the other common um, comparisons made to Agawa are to Poe and to uh, Borgay. I can definitely see that in the work. Yeah, I, I can see it too, um, which is not to say that they're influences necessarily. Um, she does list uh, in a 2014 interview she did um, with, uh, who did she do it with? Oh, I think it's from her own website, Agawa Yoko at wordpress.com. Check that out, folks. 2014 interview, uh, they ask her about her influences, and she says, uh, Yasunari Kawabata, Abe Kobo, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Paul Oster. Uh, obviously, I mean, from my point of view, the Kobo Abe one is huge, but so is the Paul Oster one. Uh, I see a lot of Paul Oster in Agawa's work, and, and again, you know, I love Paul Oster, so there's definitely a, a grouping. Paul Oster wrote the is it the New York trilogy or something that I'm trying to think of. Or yes, okay, yeah, yes, cool. I'm on the yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm still and, to read that, but I've heard it's incredible. Oh, it's it's absolutely marvelous. Um, and uh, and he actually on on this particular edition of Revenge nice cover this one he offers that they have a soundbite from paul oster which is highly original which you know in paul oster terms that's high praise uh he's not a gusher he's not gushing everywhere that's that's yeah that's pretty significant uh yeah and and, and in terms of murakami uh, i think we were talking before it, it is probably true that she sits in his shadow in in, in sort of western minds uh, I think the central contemporary Japanese writer in a Western context is Murakami. Um, and certainly I've, I've read commentary that, you know, he's he's in the discussion to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, which um, in, if people don't know what that really means, it's a Lifetime Achievement Award. So they attach it to whatever the person has written last, but it's really about your whole body of work. Um, but you could argue, and some have argued, that Agawa would also be very uh, deserving of that prize, and there is a sense that it won't come to her until it comes to him. So, so it's <sighs> certainly in his shadow, if if that is true. But then there's the other Murakami, uh, Ryu Murakami, who wrote. Um, uh, no, no, I'm blanking out. That's just great. Uh, audition, uh, amongst others. <laughs> Uh, and he's a marvelous writer, but he's literally known as the other Murakami. What a bummer! Imagine being the other, the other Higginson. Okay, so <laughs> well, I want to put a new question to you, Gareth. If you saw Ryo Murakami's book on a table next to Haruki Murakami's book, on it, what one are you going to buy? Ooh, oh, honestly, it depends, it, <laughs> it depends on the title. It depends on the title. 
I mean, I am okay. a big fan of both. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the thing here is folks get all your, your friends and family to give you gift vouchers to a bookshop and buy all the books, all the books. You go in, you say to the shop assistant, the I want bookshop. all the books, not just a few of the books. I don't mean many of your books. I want all the books given to me now. Here are my vouchers. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's a story idea. <laughs> it is a story idea, isn't it? Um, she also, she talks about the tin drum as a film that was particularly influential on her. And I do see in her oh, work some shades of Gunter Grass. Um, and and certainly uh, Gunter Grass and Hir- Haruki Murakami have a, have a, have a very sort of parallel aesthetic um, relationship, I think. Uh, but I did so. I, I found out some stuff about her. You know, you don't read for the author, but I just I didn't want to sort of go. I don't know anything about her. Um, and this was in this same interview. So I said, "What do you do when you're not writing?" And she said, "I walk our dog, and knit, and watch baseball." on tv so that's that's what she does in her spare time she she writes uh i think five days a week nine to five uh and that's how she's managed to be so prolific and they also asked her have you ever had another job what would you do if you were not a writer her response was i was a secretary at a hospital before i started writing if i weren't a writer i'm sure i would be doing something else but even if no one read them I suspect I would still be writing stories. I don't know if there's anything else one needs to know about a writer than that. That sounds about right, doesn't it? It's a writer writing for the joy of writing as opposed for any acclaim. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, I think it's interesting that she was a secretary at a hospital because obviously she taps into some of that experience in revenge uh, and specifically in the story Lab Coats. And she taps into the baseball aspect in uh, The Professor and I think I've got the title mixed up. The Housekeeper and The Professor. Yeah, baseball's a really uh, big yes. sport in Japan. It is. And um, I was at work the other day and I was talking to a colleague and he said, oh, my kids play baseball. And I was like, oh, baseball, are you guys originally from Japan or Korea? Because it was so easy to be like Baseball is the biggest sport in those two countries. So either or 50-50 and he was from Korea. But, yeah, very big sport. Yeah, really huge. And I, and I guess that sort of describes the um, the sort of east-west friction that's still sort of an issue in Japan. Um, that was something of a, uh, an obsession for Yukio Mishima. Um, you know, he was, he was interesting because, um, you know, Mishima was like a – he had the most Western style of writing of any Japanese writer. And he, he was a sort of a movie star in films that very much felt, uh, like they were, that they were heavily, um, influenced by Western films, but he also had a, an anxiety or a disdain for, for sort of the Westernization of Japan. And I, I think that's something that always sort of feels like it's bubbling under the surface of a lot of Japanese writing, this this friction between East and West. Um, she actually talks about this too. Uh, so the interviewer at, at one point in this interview says, your work has been well-received by American critics and readers. It seems to transcend culture in many ways. Why do you think your books, which at times are quite surreal, nonetheless translate smoothly into other languages and cultures? Uh, and before she gives her answer, I do think part of the reason is Steven Snyder. I think like he's, he's quite an exceptional translator, but anyway, her answer is, uh, my work begins at the level of images that form in my mind from those images, settings and characters take shape, but it's not particularly important to me what country the story is set in or what language the characters are speaking. My goal, in fact, is to create people and places that exist solely in and for the world of my novel. If the result of this process is that my work can be read and appreciated by people in other countries, then nothing could please me more. Uh, Now, she actually, um, 
talks about this slightly more specifically in terms of Hotel Iris, uh, where she says, um, in, in, ter- in talking about its sort of uh, its impetus, uh, she says, this is a novel that began with a place. I was staying in a seaside hotel in a small town in France, and there was a tiny island offshore that was only visible at low tide. As I watched that island come and go, the various scenes in the novel took shape in my head. So again, beginning with an image and then starting to build out into a series of scenes. And she writes, um, she says that she writes without like, you know, a particular sense of where she's going with things. And sometimes the ending of her stories are a real surprise to her, a happy surprise. But reading Revenge, it doesn't feel like that at all, I think. No, I think Revenge, because it's so intricate and so complex, I don't think you could have written it in such a way that you didn't know the ending. So I'm surprised by that because you would have to have – I'm actually very curious about how she wrote it. If she sat off with one short story, a character bled into another, the setting bled into another story, or if she had it in her mind beforehand – I need this to connect to this, I need this to connect to this, or maybe she had eight pieces and she needed to then plug in four pieces to make it all wrap up as beautifully as it does. Um, and this is why I love Revenge so much. It's uh, I'll put that picture back up so everyone can see the mastermind behind this because it's so beautiful, all the connections. Um, Revenge is, to me, a good collection of short stories is one that you can pick up again and again and read. Revenge is definitely that, and you're going to get something new every single time. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, there is a bit of a misunderstanding about her work, though. Um, people talk about it uh, in terms of it being a, a story cycle in a, in a sort of a Western sense or a composite novel, composite novel being uh, a novel mm. made up of stories that are connected perhaps by place or, or by a central protagonist or, or some incident. Um, and we've talked about fix-up novels before, which are a similar sort of thing, except that they began as stories. And then uh, later the writer said, I can put all these together and make it into something uh, that resembles a novel in scope. Uh and a really good example of 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 this sort of um, composite novel or story cycle would be something like the Canterbury Tales. So, in a Western tradition, uh, the composite novel story cycle, uh, you know, has a long and, and rich uh, history. But Yoko Ogawa is is not a Western writer, and I think I think that's that seems to be lost on quite a few critics. Uh, and the tradition she's coming out of in terms of Japanese literature is, is this uh, thing that is quite common historically to Japanese literature where themes and motifs do uh, reoccur throughout in individual pieces. Uh, my understanding of that is limited to pretty much what I've said, uh, which is virtually nothing. Um, but it is a different tradition, and I think it speaks to how random it all seems. When you see this done in a Western sense, you can see the kind of the, the, the gears. Like if you really look for them, you can see the gears and the sense of purpose. With, with her writing, uh, I think a few reviewers have suggested it's like getting caught in a web. I think that's much more the thing. You, you, it seems almost happenstance. A little strand of silk pulls you this way and then drags you back this way. And before you know it, you're caught in this web of associations that you don't fully grasp, but every new discovery is, is, is an enormous pleasure. And you feel like you've almost got the answer, you know, the answer. And then, and then you don't slips through your fingers. There's something just incredibly intoxicating about that. I think the, the connections seem, uh, they seem very much unplanned and they seem to be in, in the same way that in life when coincidences occur that seem somehow uh, profound, there's a randomness to it and there's a joy and an exhilaration to these moments of connection. Uh, and I think that's that's how I would describe the reading experience of revenge. Uh, you have these moments, they'd be tiny moments, but they'd feel so profound, but you couldn't say why. Uh, mm. And that, for me, was the joy of it. 
Yeah, it is actually very similar to uh, Korean dramas and probably Korean authors as well. Um, I know in Korean dramas you have this event which just seems so out of place, but then as the story continues, they bring it back into the story and you're like, oh, my God, that has so much more significance than what I originally thought it would be. Um, That's beautiful. And I don't – I agree with – I don't know if a lot of Western writers have that and I'm not sure if it's because we have very – different thought processes because we have a very linear mentality in the Western world, whereas theirs is very cyclical. Um, you know, reincarnation, you get another chance, you get reincarnated three or four times, whereas ours is you live, you die, you go to heaven. Kudos, amazing stuff. You've been a good person. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that that difference is is very noticeable. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess the, the, we haven't really talked about the book in specific though, in specific terms. I, um, I thought it might be interesting to read just a couple of things. Uh, I want to explain to people in terms of writing how tiny little elements can have, uh, enormous import. Uh, the, the very first page of revenge is something I go to quite a bit because it's quite short and it really makes the point. So I thought I might read you that. So it's like a little, little taster of the book. Um, this is quite short. So this, this is from the first story, uh, which is entitled afternoon at the bakery. It was a beautiful Sunday. The sky was a cloudless dome of sunlight. Out on the square, leaves fluttered in a gentle breeze along the pavement. Everything seemed to glimmer with a faint luminescence. The roof of the ice cream stand, the faucet on the drinking fountain, the eyes of a stray cat, even the base of the clock tower covered with pigeon droppings. Families and tourists strolled through the square, enjoying the weekend. Squeaky sounds could be heard from a man off in the corner who was twisting balloon animals. A circle of children watched him entranced. Nearby, a woman sat on a bench knitting. Somewhere a horn sounded. A flock of pigeons burst into the air and startled a baby who began to cry. The mother hurried over to gather the child in her arms. You could gaze at this perfect picture all day, an afternoon bathed in light and comfort, and perhaps never notice a single detail out of place or missing. That's a. I, I, think that's, I really, yeah. yeah, I really love that opening. And um, when I was reading that opening, because the story doesn't, she Yogo Gower paints this beautiful picture of everything being normal and perfect, as you said in that closing paragraph. And then you know it quickly changes in in a single line, essentially within that story to, oh, there's actually more going on here. And when I read the first paragraph, I'll kind of read it again so I can get that this juxtaposition in for the readers and for you, Gareth, because I'm not sure if you noticed. It was a beautiful Sunday. The sky was a cloudless dome of sunlight. Out on the square, leaves fluttered in a gentle breeze along the pavement. Everything seemed to glimmer with a faint luminescence. The roof of the ice cream stand, the faucet on the drinking fountain, the eyes of a stray catch, even the base of the clock tower covered with pigeon droppings. So she's trying to paint this picture of everything being perfect. And when I read it, I thought about um, 1984 by George Orwell. He does something completely different where he's trying to make things seem as strange as possible, but using the same imagery, but in a slightly different way. And I'll read it out. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. So you've got, you know, the clock, you've got uh, the dust, this wind coming in, and it's a very similar scene but painted in very different ways. Um, And I think that's the magic of Yoko Agawa's writing because each of these stories start off in a what you would term like just a normal setting and then there's a switch in the story and I love that about Yoko Gao's work. It's like it gets me excited every time. You know, you're about to swip 
uh, switch this story on its head and present to me something un- completely unexpected. Yeah, it, it has that feel, doesn't it, all the way through the sort of the mundane and, and the, the macabre. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because there are hints. It's not that she just twists it. Um, like, for example, you've got lines like uh, squeaky sounds could be heard from a man off in the corner who was twisting balloon animals. They're just that phrase, twisting balloon animals, has a real violence about it. Uh, and, and, and really, you know, you've got a horn and then the pigeons and the baby cries. It's quite, there's almost a drama to the scene, but she, she assures us that this is a still and, 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 and picturesque moment. Uh, and, and you just tend to believe her. Uh, but she's already sticking in some details that are slightly unsettling that I think just niggle at your nerve endings. Uh, there's something that Shirley Jackson does very well as well. Uh, you can read a section and nothing happens and you think, God damn, I'm unsettled. Uh, it's a real skill. But, yeah, that last line really packs a punch, doesn't it? And it's said yeah. in such a... Yeah, do you have a, the last line in front of you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, well, unfortunately it crosses over a page. But um, you could gaze at this perfect picture all day, an afternoon bathed in light and comfort, and perhaps never notice a single detail out of place or missing. And of course, you know, uh, if you do a close reading of this, which uh, which I was doing yesterday with some people, it was very very fun. Uh, y- you know, there's a there's a sense of of children and motherhood on the first page, uh, and and really, you know, the, she's already signalling that the the detail out of place might be to do with a child or indeed with her status as a mother. It's a very interesting thing. And she she also has uh, the other story we looked at yesterday, uh, my friends and I, um, was lab coats, and and that's uh, that's a fascinating story. And here's just another great example of how she slips in some really odd stuff. Um, so she's describing how the protagonist in that story, the narrator. And the object of the narrator's affection, uh, another um, admin member of of the hospital staff, uh, um, they're putting together a presentation, or they're, or they're preparing the the uh, the sort of ancillary elements of it, putting stickers on slides and so forth. And the uh, it, so it begins. Not long after I started working here, some bigwig in neurology asked us to help with a presentation he was going to give at a conference. It had all these graphs and charts, and he wanted it back in just two days. She split the work with me, and we typed up labels for the slides. Use the number 508 stickers for the slides, she told me. They're for conferences. Number 508 was a dull gray. I did the job just the way she'd asked, but when the doctor returned to pick up the presentation, he took one look at it and threw it back on the desk. It all tumbled down onto the floor. This color won't show up on the projector, he said. I'm terribly sorry, she said, stepping in before I had the chance to say anything. Her apology was really smooth. I told her to use the number 608 as usual, but it's my fault for not checking. She's new and I think she's a little colorblind. I'm very sorry. We'll get it redone by the end of the day. The doctor said he'd be back later and stormed out. Colorblind. For a moment, I wasn't sure what she'd said, just that she'd sounded really charming when she'd said it. Number 608 was bright blue. She definitely told me number 508. I knew because it was the same number as her apartment. I wasn't likely to make a mistake about something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in amongst the sort of mundane... <laughs> Uh, vagaries of of office admin we have this little discovery that one worker knows where the other worker lives uh, and probably shouldn't uh yeah and she just kind of slips these mm. things in and they slap you <laughs> you're just not ready for them yeah uh i think um i found an article talking yoko Agawa talks about this particular skill that she has in um 
Words Without Borders, Yoko Gower's Revenge by Mithili Rao. What an awesome name, Mithili. Um, so, quote, one of the constant themes in my work is the problem of deficient excess. Something that should, by all rights, exist is lacking, while the extraneous thing that is left achieves a kind of warped excess. When I look back at my work thus far, I've described this sort of family over and over. I can't say it was by design. It has just happened that way. Uh, so deficient excess. Deficient excess. Um, what are your thoughts on that terminology? Oh, but I think that's what it is. Uh, she gives you the bare minimum details and then she just plugs that extra thing in and you're like, wowzers. Yeah, yeah. And, and and also, I mean, I think she's talking about a kind of a situational defamiliarization where something is missing and it's replaced by something else that becomes maybe a fetish of some description, some bigger thing. Um, you could say at the you know, afternoon at the bakery, the uh, strawberry shortcake becomes the, um, the excessive thing. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, actually, that quote is from the same 2014 article, so we'll have to put both up. And I, and I did actually uh, read the words with our Borders review, which was really excellent, wasn't it? Uh, I have it on my desk, actually, mm. uh, but I won't bother reading from it because you beat me to it. Um, but, yeah, that was a oh, <laughs> that was a fantastic <laughs> review, I thought. That was probably the first one I read that I mm-hmm. thought, well, this person knows what they're doing. Um yeah, yeah. The, I wish it was the first one I read because the nonsense before of comparing her to Murakami, I was like, Ugh. anyway, ah, continue. Murakami, bah, <laughs> uh, curse on his eyes. Yeah, Haruki Murakami. Well, you know, I'm going to say it again. I love the man. I love the man. The Wind Up Bird Chronicle, uh, I think, is one of the great books of the last fifty years. I think it's. it's I think it's brilliant. I know you don't like it, Shannon. But it just blew, well, you know. I well, mean, good. The, this is why we're friends. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, I, I was the one who put you on the Murakami, wasn't I? I said you can't go wrong with a Murakami novel. Seven novels in, you're waiting for that to be true. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it's I've actually loved we went to a cafe written. together. Well, fun. We went to a cat cafe together, funnily enough. Um, you know, because cats are a big theme in Murakami, and we picked out one of those. Um, the one at Bird Chronicle from one of those free book exchanges. And oh, yes. like, yeah, he's amazing. You should totally read him. And I'm like, okay, Gareth, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I can do this. <laughs> Seven books in, I still feel like I've been lied to. <laughs> it's very sad. It's, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't sorry. it? It would be fascinating to be able to quantify why I think he's so brilliant and you don't uh, because we, we share a lot of uh, similar sensibilities around writers. There must be something that one could put one's finger on. I just had a thought on that. I think when we're talking about the deficient excess, I think Murakami has excess deficiency. On some things he just goes over the top and I'm just like, oh, God, this is going on for four pages. What's that? Like anyway, um, I, I, really, I feel really bad for Bashi on Murakami. But then like four pages in of all this excess and then you give me this little minute detail, whereas Yoga Ogawa is the opposite, I find. Um, but oh, that's interesting. Anyway. So I think for me with Murakami, it's becoming a Murakami review. But with Murakami, I actually love the details. Like I, when he starts talking about food, he'll often talk about food for quite a long time. And I always think, why? Well, I wish I could get him to come and make me a sandwich because he seems to know what he's doing <laughs> uh, in terms of food far better than I ever have. But, yeah, I mean, I, when I read his stuff about things like that, I very much, you know, he talks about beer or, or going for a walk and uh, he'll really describe the grass between houses. And, yeah, for me this stuff has a sort of a sensual appeal that uh, that I'm very drawn into. Um Whereas Yoko Ogawa, she's much more of a minimalist, uh, considerably more minimalistic. Mm. I think although um, The Memory Police, which is one of her earliest works, uh, the latest to be translated, uh, that doesn't feel anywhere near as minimalistic to me. And I don't know if this is something that's happened over time with her work or it was just a horses for courses thing or or what but stylistically it feels very different to the other ones that have been translated into english 
Well, I'm just thinking that was probably her thickest book that we have in translation from the Japanese, whereas the rest of it in the short story form, you have to be minimalistic to get like everything in that short story that you want to deliver. Um, so maybe that's why, because I always think of Murakami's like you could shorten your books like 18, 800 pages to 400 in what you're trying to deliver. Um, and I'm also of the opinion that movies that are two hours long, you could have cut that into one hour, but I am a minimalist. I would say that's part of my identity. So maybe that's my issue. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I, I'm not sure if this is correct or not. But I have the sense that Murakami has mentioned – I'm pretty sure that uh, Murakami has mentioned Charles Dickens as an influence. I could have completely fabricated this. Uh, if you think I have, write in the comments. If you think I'm making some sort of clever point, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing that in a comment too. Uh, but, yeah, uh, sort of a Dickensian um, Naughtiness that certainly you'll see in someone like John Irving, who, who definitely uh, is heavily influenced by Dickens. Uh, you'll see it in Gunter Grass, um, and again, I see a, I see a real um, as a, a concurrency between um, Gunter Grass and, and Haruki Murakami. Um, I say concurrency because for me, they seem to be existing not only in the same space, but the same time, uh, the same sort of temporal reading space. Um, and, and, and certainly Yoko Ogawa, they feel like there are sort of echoes, but, but it really does feel like she's coming from a very different space. Um, I think probably the writer that sits between Murakami and Ogawa would be Abe. I can see how Abe could become Murakami that, yeah. or Agawa. If we're thinking of poetic influence, it really feels like one could evolve into either of those two writers from where Abe was. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have any favorite bits of the book that you feel like uh, reading to us? There was just little segments that have stuck with me. Uh, the line when, again, this is afternoon at the bakery, where we find out this mum is going to buy her child shortcake and she's talking to an elderly in the bakery. I'm buying them for my son. Today is his birthday. Really? Well, I hope it's a happy one. How old is he? Six. He'll always be six. He's dead. And, oh, it's just so good. And then um, instead of concentrating on the death, oh, on the death of her son, they, um, Yoga Gao concentrates on the grief of this mother dealing with the death to the point that there's this awful scene where she's taking out the groceries from their fridge and then she hops. Oh, actually, the son dies because he gets locked up in a fridge and he can't get back out. I should probably give that detail. Um, so she takes out their um, groceries out of the fridge and hops in the fridge and closes the door just so she can understand what her son went through while he was dying. And then she, uh, the husband asks, like, what are you doing? And he eventually leaves her. But that was incredibly powerful, um, the emotional feeling. Um, yeah, I was reading this kind of at the same time as fin finishing Well of Loneliness and the juxtaposition between just – the ability to create emotion in the reader with these small little scenes was amazing. So that was one of my favorite. And then the other one that my other favorite short story, and this is, again, this really powerful thing with Yoko Agao. I've We've read a few collection of short stories. Every single one of these stories has a punch, has an impact. It doesn't dull anywhere or dip, and each of them are just as good as the other. The one that I really enjoyed was The Man Who Sold Braces. And um, it's told from the perspective of the nephew talking about his uncle. And he gets gift everything this his uncle creates breaks down. And he gets gifted a tie a jacket made with tiger skin. And eventually, you know, this jacket keeps him warm, but pieces of it start falling off and it leaves him chilled at the end. Um, and then we get the story of the last hour of the Bengal tiger, and you've just got this real chill of this animal that had a life is now being warned by a human in the, oh gosh yeah. I, I just get really excited about each of these short stories and what are some of your favorites um i don't know that i i specifically have 
a favorite story. And I, I find it hard to imagine reading the book at random, like just picking up a story. So certainly, like I say, yesterday, uh, with a, with a few friends, we did some close readings of two of the stories, but I basically just picked them at random. Um, uh, but we, we could have done any of the other stories, really. Uh, I, what I would say, though, is an afternoon at the bakery is a really good example of this. Um, now, again, I you know I haven't read the Japanese, and I haven't even looked at the Japanese text, so uh, I, I don't know how it would present as text, but. Agawa does this really great thing with sections. The section you described of the husband tearing open the fridge, it's, you know, it's, it's about that, that long. Uh, and that's a whole section. And there's a sort of a cinematic quality to it. Like they're like cuts and every cut, uh, defines a scene that has an incredible integrity all of its own that when placed in the context of the whole has, uh, more integrity and, and there are more and more connections. And then of course the stories within the body of the entire book, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, and, and, and it feels at times that some of her choices are completely arbitrary. And I know that, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if I actually read this before, but, uh, from the same 2014 interview, isn't it lucky we found this one? Uh, the question is, your stories, which are very elegantly constructed, um, rarely offer easy answers. I think that's like this, this idea of being elegantly constructed um, suggests an understanding of how her work how her work is that might not actually be quite correct. Anyway, your stories, which are very elegantly constructed, rarely offer easy answers. Sometimes they end ambiguously or with a sense that reality is not something of which we can always be certain. Would you talk about why this ambiguity is part of how you tell a story? And I go, oh, I responds, since I have almost no plan or outline before I begin writing a story, I have no way of predicting how it will end up. As a result, I suppose the endings can seem ambiguous. My happiest moment, however, comes when I get to enjoy the surprise of seeing how my story has turned out. I was, when I read that, I was really surprised, really surprised, because her stories, the way they fit together, and all the different semantic resonances they have, how could this possibly uh, not be constructed and planned. How, how could one arrive at this outcome? It seems extraordinary to me. And I guess the only answer uh, that I can find, I'd love to interview Yoko Ogawa. I think we'd need a translator, but still, I'd love to do it. Um, is that either these are, in a sense, constructed within her unconscious. And, and so, she, you know, she's some of this stuff she's not consciously aware how she's putting it together, but it's, it's sort of been percolating in her dream brain or she just edits like a champ. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a bit of both. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think that that's, that's something that I found very surprising about her stuff because the way the stories, I mean, even uh, afternoon at the bakery becomes a story that somebody maybe wrote or maybe they didn't write it, in which case it's not real. But then if you check out the interconnections, the reason for the child being, or the, the, the person who finds the child in the refrigerator, the way she connects to these other characters suggests that it must be real. Uh, so it certainly does make you question what's real and what isn't, uh, which I always think is a very sensible thing. I think when people think they understand reality, uh, they're really kidding themselves. That's a, that's a deep dream. Uh, and that could be a, also an Eastern thing, uh, you know, from, from the Buddhist tradition that the, we're living in an illusion. Uh, but, but there's something about that. And she does it in, in all her work. There, there's a dreamlike quality uh, that's always a bit unsettling, uh, but in a really wonderful way, even in the housekeeper and the professor, which is a, uh, beautiful, beautiful book. Have you read that one, Shannon? Yes, I have. And it's very Kobo Abe as well and Borges, um, that kind of illusionary 
quality that she has in her work. Yeah, because I mean, it's really about uh, it's about love, isn't it? But it's a love that forms between um, the housekeeper and her son, and the professor who has a kind of dementia where he can't remember what happened yesterday. He can only remember into the into the distant past, and so their relationship begins again every day. But there's a sort of a deeper connection that seems to be fostered over time that that can't really be satisfied by the sort of the superficial where every day he goes, oh, you're my housekeeper. Oh, you have a son. And they have to begin again. Uh, and I think there's, there's, there's a, there's a correlation there that I, that I haven't really thought about. So it's fantastic that I'm now saying this publicly, but there's a correlation there. Uh, and again, you know, if you're listening to this and you think, of course there is Gareth and it's this, stick that in the comments. So I know what I'm talking about, but, but yeah, there's this connection between perception and memory. I mean, we have the memory police as well. Uh, and how we construct our sense of the real that seems to be a major factor in her work. Uh, and it's just constantly deliciously exciting and unsettling. Definitely my favourite writer. She does the same in Hotel Iris, I think. Um, so Hotel Iris is about a young girl who meets an older guy and he takes her back to his place and does some atrocious sexual activities to her, but her perception of it is, oh, yeah, kind of shrugs it off, this is normal, and then everyone finds out because they find the photographs and the dude just jumps off a boat and dies and it's over. Um, just a whirlwind of just this, like, I don't know how she does it of, like, I as a reader am disgusted by the activity and yet my perception of this stuff is getting um, – becoming biased because of the author telling me their perspective of it. Oh, just hit my microphone again. That's all right. It's a great, it's an exclamation mark. Yeah. She actually does talk about, um, she does talk about Hotel Iris in this uh, ubiquitous interview. Uh, And she says the following, which I think you might find interesting. My purpose in writing Hotel Iris was not to describe Mari, that was the girl, but to use her to depict the elderly translator. She is not so much the protagonist of the novel as a character who is given a role as the translator's sole companion for his final days. She's a witness tasked with preserving the memory that a person such as the translator existed in this world. Her submissiveness is, I think, an act she puts on in order to grant the translator his final wish. At some point in the novel, she even begins to seem motherly in relation to the old man. You could say that her encounter with the translator makes her suddenly become an adult, though I do not mean this in the sexual sense. Isn't that interesting? That's That's not how I would have read Hotel Iris at all. I'd be interested to reread it now with that in my head. Yeah, I can kind of see that because after the death of the translator, his final memory of existing is these photographs. That's all he'll be known for as opposed to, I think he translated Russian to Japanese. I think that's what he was doing, Mm. all these medical texts, which, you know, also goes back to Yoga Ogawa's background being a uh, medical secretary. And also a particular kind of writing that perhaps isn't satisfying. Uh, in in revenge, we have a writer mm. who is essentially writing ads for hotels. Um, we have another writer who writes a novel that turns out to be a bunch of blank pages. If she ever wrote anything, um, oh, that was creepy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Like writing as an object is a, is again another of these major points in her work that that keeps coming back again and again. Um, and I think maybe also the question now, Yoko Tawada, who we've talked about a little bit. Um, I think the, the the idea of how writing functions and how writing functions in translation and how writing functions in edit in editorial contexts 
is something that I think both Yokos, so we've got two Murakamis, now we're going to have two Yokos, uh, seem to have something of a preoccupation with. Uh, and again, I don't know why I'm doing Yoko this, Tawada. but I feel like in the comments, people should comment on this. We should get a discussion going because I, I don't want this discussion to end with this podcast because it's just too interesting. Yeah, so Tawada wrote, um, The Bridegroom Was a Dog. That's one I've read. Very strange, very strange. Um, and Scattered All Over yeah. the Earth, uh, which is one I picked up the other day, which I haven't read yet, but it sounds fascinating. It's about a bunch of linguists in a post-apocalyptic future. I mean, what more could you ask for? Um, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the, she's an interesting one because she writes in, in Japanese and German. Um, and so, so her works are always um, considering the, the translated and the, the concept of being translated. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know if they've ever been in discussion, uh, but uh, you know, again, uh, it would be very interesting to to uh, listen to a conversation between uh, Yoko Agara and Yoko Tawada about their various. Uh, literary preoccupations i think that would that would be a really interesting discussion mm. now before i give my star rating of this book did you have anything else that you wanted to add for our very meandering and twisted review of revenge by yoko agawa um the well i guess the only thing is i i would uh i would say that um People should definitely read this book. I'm going to give it one star. No, wait, no, I'm not. I'm going to give it five stars. It's five uh, stars. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a pretty safe bet, actually. Um, but I, I probably wouldn't read too many reviews of it or get too hung up on on what she's doing from a Western context because it isn't a Western book, and I think. Uh, having expectations that are sort of culturally biased actually will diminish your enjoyment a little bit, I think. Um, particularly, you know, if you've, if you've listened to this and thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and read this book anyway, and you can, cause we haven't really given away anything too important. I don't think, uh, yeah, you really want to get away from the idea of the story cycle and the sort of Western, uh, tradition of these things. Cause she does approach it in a very different way. Uh, and I, I read, you know, a review that said uh, her approach was gimmicky, um, or and, and haphazard. What? Yeah, and 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 I think one reviewer said by the end I got so sick of the tricks I just wanted it to be over. I don't really understand that because I don't think there were any tricks being played. Um, I, <laughs> this dude must hate Halloween. Well, yeah, done too. Um, <laughs> I would say this book is is a book full of treats, not a book full of tricks. Uh, and and yeah, so I think if you come at it, you know, in a very sort of uh, passive way and go, okay, let's just see what happens. I, I think you'll love it uh, because it is extraordinary, and it does defy expectations. So you're wasting your time going in with expectations. Expect to love it. Um, and if you don't love it, well, get on the comments. You see, I've got this whole theme that I'm working with today. Get on those comments and say, well, I didn't love it, and uh, and here's why. And that would be a fascinating conversation too. So five stars from me. I'd give it six if I could. What are you giving it, Shannon? I am also giving it five stars and I'm glad that I brought in the analogy of Halloween because it's full of tricks and it's full of treats um, and also it's got that sense of macabre as well. It's right up there in terms of what I love. I love being tricked essentially when I'm reading a story um, and her writing style is beautiful. I love that kind of the deficient excess aspect that she was talking about. It's very minimalistic, but hits with a punch every single time. And I agree with you, like forget about that whole Western concept of you start and then you end because this ends essentially at the start. And then you can kind of go back and read it again and again. You can. And I just want to jump in and say she doesn't do tricks. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna die on this hill. There are no tricks in this book. She there are surprises, 
but they are not, this is not Agatha Christie. Well, that's what I mean by tricks. Uh, well, you see, Agatha Christie does tricks. Sometimes with her books, there's no way you could have guessed who did it because there's just not the information there. If you read these right. ones really carefully, I mean, I, you know, I was getting surprised all over the place. <gasps> we could do one of these, you know, on the YouTube videos, they always have the people looking surprised. <gasps> there we go. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. But if you go back through her work, she lays the seeds for it. You can actually see these things coming. I mean, why would you do that to yourself? But they're very honest surprises, I guess, is what I'm saying. Uh, it's about as far away from gimmicky as you can get. You know, boo to people who say this is gimmicky because they're, they're just, I, I would say they're objectively and factually. I just wrong. can't even. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like that's a crazy word to apply. It's more like she sets you up with a perception of reality and then every now and again you realize your perception of reality is wrong. Uh, but it's your perception. And if you go back, you can see that, in fact, she was letting you know how things really are and you just missed it. Uh, and that's what's so joyous about it. You can actually see that in actual fact these things aren't, uh, they aren't surprises in a dishonest way. They're built in uh, and she really lets you know what's going to come next. You just have to you have to dig under all the layers of silk. So yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I just I had to I had to get the trick thing. <laughs> all good. Um, I was using the word trick for surprise, um, but yeah, good point to make. And <laughs> I'm going to mention the. It's probably this is actually a surprise to you, Gareth. Yes, because I haven't mentioned what book I want to read. No, I have next. no idea. Or um, wait, hang on, so, let me think. Have there been clues? Yes, Mariana Enrique. You've got three guesses. Uh, what's the book called? It's a it's a big one. Uh, something in the night. You are unbelievable, Gareth. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> So I, that oh was the gosh. breadcrumbs. You can read deeply into these things and predict <laughs> the future like a sage, our share of night. Yeah. This is not a joke, audience. I We have honestly not had a conversation about this. So we're having a Christmas break, and as you can see, it's quite thick. So you will have time to read this amazing book. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been talking about authors in translation for a little while, and Mariana Enriquez she wrote uh, The Danger of Smoking in Bed. And what's the other one that she won heaps of awards for? Uh, um, Things We Lost in the Fire. Is that right? Yes. Um, so we're reading this next and I'm very, very excited. I'll Where is the blurb? I'll read the blurb out. Yes, please. His father could find what was lost. His father knew when someone was going to die. His father had talked to him about the dead who rode in on the wind. The dead travel fast. Jasper is a six-year-old when the order first come for him. For years, they have exploited his father's ability to commune with the dead and the demonic, presiding over macabre rituals where the unwanted and the disappeared are tortured and executed, sacrificed to the darkness. Now they want a successor. Nothing will stop the order. Nothing is beyond them. Surrounded by horrors, can Jasper break free? I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah. I'm because I mean I've only read her short stories, so it's going to be very um, interesting. So just to a heads up to everyone. Yeah, so go get this book now as soon as this podcast or YouTube video releases because there's 700 plus words. So you want to get a head start on this one, but I'm very very excited. 700 plus pages. I, 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 uh, I was just thinking I could do. Oh, that's what I meant. <laughs> I could do 700 words, I reckon, by the end of today if I really put my back into it. <laughs> yeah. This is all just pictures. It's just 700 words. Just a big pile of <laughs> blank pages. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited. Mm. Thank you for picking that one. I think it's, it's going to, um, gosh, going to have to get fit. It's like going for a marathon, isn't it? You've got to start you know, working those muscles, get up every morning and instead of, you know, doing a run, you read a chapter of Our Share of Night, Our Share of Night. Yep, Our Share of Night. Share I don't think night. we've mentioned, the title is Share of Night um, by Mariana Enriquez. Oh, well, that should be a great and one. And I can't tell you how many chapters there are. 
but there are six parts. Okay. So a part per week. That seems doable. Well, I'm going to look forward to that. Yeah. Thank you very much for picking that one. No worries. I'm incredibly impressed by you picking up all the breadcrumbs that I somehow have been leaving uh, out and about. And if we don't see you, well, we're having a break and we probably won't see you, but Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and we'll be back in the new year with our reviews and more amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think little break, maybe a month, something like that. I think that's how it'll feel from a, a reception point of view. Uh, but we'll be back in uh, late January, early February, something like that with, uh, well, it won't be a review of this book. You know what we could do in the new year is we could talk about these breadcrumbs. And how did how did I work out what book uh, you were going to pick? Uh, and, and we could do that with some close readings of something. I think that would be pretty interesting. Um, or would it? I don't know. Well, I mean, I find that stuff incredibly interesting. So um, that could be a great way to start 2024. Well, here's the bet. If we haven't finished it but by that time and the audience has let us know that they haven't finished it, we'll put in that session because that will also be incredibly valuable. Okay. Sounds like a winner. Um, yeah, so so put it in the comments yeah. if you if you want that session and you're going to take a long time to read our share of night uh and yeah have a safe and happy holiday season i think that's the way to say it these days and uh yeah we'll see you next year hey everyone Bye.